This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. <coughs> Advantages of polycultures. The symbiosis of interactions, as explained on page 13, plants supplying needed nutrients to each other. Often one plant releases nutrients at a time when its neighbor needs them. Ah, it, there. Now it's been said. There it is in black, <laughs> in black and purple. <laughs> All right. The earth in polycultures has ideal roots at all depths and is kept moist at all times. Deep roots, tap roots, and shallow roots create the perfect storage body for water and nutrients for water are utilized throughout. Okay. <clears throat> Each plant species has its own pest. Bark beetles, the caterpillars of the cabbage butterfly or carrot flies, only attack their respective hosts. In reality, these so-called pests are useful regulators. They prevent overpopulation and keep nature balanced. In polycultures, I might lose a few plants, but never the whole crop. Whereas in monocultures, whole crops get wiped out. When that happens, the farmer starts using pesticides. Well, is it true that you're having a master gardening class at your at your place? Sort of. <laughs> We're gonna have it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so uh in January of twenty twenty two, uh Helen Atow will be teaching um the garden master course. So basically for a master gardener course, that is gonna so Helen for seventeen years Helen taught the master gardener course at Missoula County. And I was in her first class in nineteen ninety six. And it was absolutely magnificent. And when I have visited with master gardeners that have taken other classes across the United States, I learned that the class I took was probably 10 or 20 times better. Wow. But the thing is, is that a master gardener course is sponsored by their local ag university, which is, let's say, sponsored by Monsanto. By Chemicals. Yeah. So the result is, is that the Master Gardener course, we had to learn all of the pesticides and the way, and the way that Helen taught it, because she was required to teach it. And she's a powerful, I mean, at this point that I'm taking this class from her, I had never 
heard the name Masanobu Fukuoka. But Helen was an intern for Fukuoka when she was much younger. And then when she came back, she found a guy in Georgia that was practicing Fukuoka stuff and interned for him for years. And her story went on and on and on and on and was richer than that. <clears throat> but here I am taking this class from her, and I was so very fortunate to take this course from her. But uh, the thing is, is that uh, she hated pesticides, but this was her job now. So, like, on the, on, as her day job, she was the county extension agent for Missoula County. And on evenings and weekends, she had her own market garden, and she had the best, she had the number one booth at the Missoula Farmer's Market. And uh, she did everything strictly organic. So when she taught us at the, gar at the Master Gardener course, then one of her primary focuses was not so much on which pesticide to use, which is part of what we have to know, but she made us study the MSDS for every pesticide. <laughs> and um, so I walked into that being with, with the opinion that there's a time and a place to use a pesticide. And when I got done with the class, I felt like there's no time when a pesticide is even remotely worth it. Because when you understand the MSDS for each pesticide, your own decision, everybody's decision will be, there is never a time. It's not worth it. There is no time when it's worth it. The, the toxicity that it brings in, the danger that it presents outweighs what you might gain. Now, for 17 years, she taught that class. And then she left. <clears throat> and then she ran a 2,000-acre organic uh, farm, um, and uh, which produced, you know, I don't know, thousands of tons of food. <clears throat> and then she moved on to other operations that were primarily focused on all of her experiments with food forests. And so she's done that. So now when I took my master gardener course from her, everything fit into this giant binder. All the materials that she provided us with fit into this giant binder that was the most giant binder I have ever seen in my life. And then... Uh, when uh, she taught her last one, I think it was double that, so two giant binders. Now, for the last, uh, I want to say, nine years, she has been working on writing a book that um, the working title is, you know, to be the Garden Master book. Notice that's not Master Gardener, but Garden Master. So pretty much what she wants to do is to take all the stuff that she taught, strip out all the non-organic stuff, and and basically it's going to be gardening, you know, with all of permaculture, all of what she learned from Fukuoka, all of what she has learned from her own experiments, <clears throat> 
And, you know, all of the master guard, the best of the master gardeners, all of that to be fit into, because now when I took the, to be fit into a class, it's the same size. And, and it'll be one condensed book. And, um, instead of a binder. So, um, uh, she's got a publisher lined up for the book. The book should be getting published this summer. And then she will teach the course. Wow. Sounds yeah. Great. Yeah. There's still tickets available. Um, yeah. That's great. But I think that the, I think I've, I have forgotten to tell people on the podcast about it. So I'm glad you brought it up, Katie. Um, <clears throat> and now my guess is, is that when word of this gets out, all of the tickets will be sold, you know, in a week. Mm. So that's my guess because I kind of feel like this is going to be a critic. Oh, and I got to tell you, oh, here's here's additional stuff. So, Katie, uh, you have met Alan Booker, the guy who teaches our PDC right now. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, and. Your opinion of him, I'm going to guess, is very high. Like, he has a magnificent PDC. He's clearly a brilliant man. Yes, he's top-notch. Yes, best of the best. Um, guess who snagged the first ticket to that <laughs> course? So, Alan Booker will be there, and um, probably sitting in the front row. And uh, um, now I'm also going to guess that several of you have seen the video of Helen uh, teaching at that PDC uh, with, with Tim Barker, right? She was a guest instructor. Yeah. Yes. She stopped by for a day and taught. And I would imagine that all of you would agree that her style of teaching is fantastic. It looked great. Okay. And Tons of information and lots of rabbit holes that she teases you with, and it was phenomenal. And at the same time, of course, I've got a bunch of podcasts with her, and um, from everybody I've heard from about, like, who's listened to all the podcasts, I think it's been um, probably 80% have uttered the phrase, the best podcasts are the ones with Helen, which <laughs> Helen heard that. I've been sitting here waiting for an opportunity to say that. <laughs> if you haven't listened to all the podcasts, go back and at least listen to the ones with Helen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Helen caught wind of that. And uh, now she brings it up every time we talk. Yes, <laughs> Helen, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, uh, anyway, um, I, uh, I, I probably should arrange more podcasts with Helen at this time. Apparently her internet where she is right now is quite excellent. And Ooh. so we should be able to do podcasts. And I'm sure that sounds great. I bet she'd like to promote her book anyway. That would be cool. Well, the book isn't published yet. Usually you wait until it's published and then promote oh, it. That's way too long to wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons I was asking is because, really, I don't understand alkaline at all. The only time I had to test my soil in Hawaii was because my blueberries weren't growing, and I needed to make it more acidic for the blueberries. But yeah. I do know that in a lot of places in Hawaii, it is very acidic. And so I just... To be honest, I really don't understand, and I'd love to understand. Blueberries want your soil to be very acidic. They are famous for wanting the most acidic soil in our normal gardening efforts. Um, 
and uh, uh, so they want a they want a pH of like five point zero. So that is I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to phrase this in a way that scientists will be upset with, but screw those guys. All right. So that means that because it's a logarithmic scale, that it is 100 times more acidic than a, a, a neutral pH, which is 7.0. So 5.0 pH is 100 times more acidic than 7.0. Okay. Now, the next thing is, is like, let's talk about alfalfa for a moment. If you're going to grow alfalfa, Alfalfa is really kind of snotty when it comes to pH. If if uh, they like a pH of about 7.2, if it's below 7, they're like, screw it, I'm out of here, I'm not doing this, Ugh, I'm going to die. Um, now, there are some varieties of alfalfa that can tolerate 6.8 and things like that, but there's also some varieties that really insist on a 7.4. So we're getting into some territory that's slightly alkaline. There are only a few plants that need a, a really high pH, but not many garden plants. Um, uh, another thing about pH is that at certain pHs, uh, you might have, I, if I remember correctly, like, for example, iron. So a plant that needs a fair amount of iron, um, like there might be lots of iron in the soil, but it, if the pH is either a little too low or a little too high, Iron becomes less available. I'm not sure what the mechanics of that are, but basically the way to make the iron, be, you know, in order for the plant which needs iron to get the iron that's already in your soil, a lot of times you need to adjust the pH slightly. Um, uh, but of course, you know, the thing we're shooting for is like, can we have diversity of pH in our soil? Can we have patches that have a high pH and patches that have a low pH and patches with a neutral pH and things like that? Let's have diversity in our soils. Whereas if you're going to grow a monocrop, then a lot of times they're going to test their pH, you know, in a bunch of little spots all over a field, a big, flat, homogenous field. And if they find enough of a variation of pH, they will adjust the pH just in those areas. <clears throat> Now, I'm sure you've heard of people adding lime to their lawns every year, and their lawn, their lawn loves it. And uh, it's because they have an acidic pH, and so the lime helps to raise the pH, but then they have to apply it every year. So it kind of rinses away. Now, is that... I, I'm going to guess, is, is this sufficient for a quickie course on pH? Yes, thank you. Okay, all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna continue reading advantages of polycultures. A polyculture containing at least fifty percent deciduous trees is the best fire protection. The trees protect each other as they contain lots of water. Now, I'm going to read something here in a moment that kind of counters that. But but still, I kind of feel like, I mean, here we are in wildfire country, and um, wildfire country here tends to be almost exclusively conifers. Now, 
I know that they've had a lot of fires down in Southern California, but then they've got a different species of tree down there, which Art Ludwig refers to as the gasoline tree. <laughs> Is that a eucalyptus? <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah. apparently it's, it's more than happy to catch on fire while it's alive and uh, hold a flame for a long time and be a nice, bright, hot fire. And so, um, but that's a, that's a deciduous tree, is it not? Not around here. It's a conifer. Well, just that it's so warm here. I mean, this is... Uh, it doesn't drop its leaves. Depends, depends on the county, but right. yeah, I mean, at least where I'm at, it's effectively zone 11. Okay. It's so not it's, a conifer. It's not a conifer. It is a tree with leaves. Let's say that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Next item from Advantages of Polycultures. <clears throat> Trees and other plants with varying heights and density in a polyculture protect each other from hail, storm, sun, and frost. I make best use of this symbiosis with progressive cultivation. Sun-loving plants, shade-more sensitive ones, and frost-sensitive plants are protected from the morning sun. All right, he did use the word best use, which I just complained about about half an hour ago. Um, so, I don't know, but he's, he's kind of vague. I make best use of this symbiosis, and so it's like, I, it's kind of vague on what exactly he does. But I'm sure that's probably a whole other book right there on what he thinks is best use. Um, in polycultures, a natural rejuvenation takes place where plants self-seed and the older ones protect the new growth. The habitat looks after itself, and I have very little work as young offshoots distract game from the cultivated tree. So concludes Advantages of Polyclusters. All right. Any comments on any of that? Yeah, my takeaway in there was that plant diversity reduces the competition for the same nutrients, right? Each plant has different nutrients it needs. It might provide nutrients back to the soil through the mycelium networks that are in healthy soil, and then that mycelium can provide those nutrients to the plants that need it. Uh, and the different depth of roots, it's able to retain more soil along those roots. Um, and then on the opposite side, monocultures, you, you're going to drain specific nutrients out of the soil, and the plants are going to become weak and more susceptible to disease being blown over, whatever it might be. I I kind of wonder if um, 20 years from now, there's going to be a whole new branch of science that's all about um, the bits of root exudate from one plant that ends up being the nutrient for another plant. And that, I mean, we've already got this whole idea of companion planting, and then we've got French intensive gardening, and, um, and now we're on to polycultures. <clears throat> but I kind of, and we already know stuff about how the mycelium helps to facilitate 
all of this. But I kind of wonder if we're going to get into a branch of science where we're going to study which exudates are nutrients for which plants. And so why does the three sisters do so much better than a monocrop? So, like, how is it that you get more bushels of corn per acre with three sisters than a monocrop of corn? But I, I the branch of science that I'm, I'm thinking is going to happen in 20 years is going to be where the identification of what came out of that pole bean and went into the corn and what came out of that squash and went into the corn. That, I think, is going to be a big branch size because I can't help but think that there's going to be probably 20 different things for just that one relationship. And that stuff came out of the corn that fed the beans and fed the squash as well. And so what? What came out? What was it? What came out and what did the plant take up and what did the plant ditch? What did the plant not want? I think, I think that these are going to be super important things. And then, then there could be even more, like an even richer relationship rather than like this plant put out XYZ, which the other plant took up. Maybe that plant put out XYZ, which led to a relationship in the soil. It'll be like the Krebs cycle or something like that. This thing happened, and then that thing happened, and then this other thing happened, and then that led to more yum-yum for this second plant. You know, I, I think that this whole thing about life feeding life is going to turn out to be a, a whole new branch of science. I think. I speculate. Ready to move on to the next piece? Yeah. All right. Monoculture is simple-mindedness. And I, and I think, I think that there's simple-mindedness that's like, you know, dumb fuckery. And then there's simple-mindedness like, well, that was easy. You know, so I think he means dumb fuckery. So. Monoculture is dumb fuckery. That's that's my translation from what Sep's saying. Look, I'm a translator now. Okay. <laughs> Rainwater cannot regenerate in such a forest. The body of the earth hardens because it lacks diverse roots at varying depths in the ground. The pH value sinks, the soil turns acid, and mosses start growing. Mosses enjoy a lovely acidic soil. The plants begin to suffer, and vitality lessens. The trees weaken and become prone to diseases and storm and snow damage. The spruces were also fertilized and became, and, and because of the acidity, lime was added. I think I mentioned lime earlier for an acidic soil. A tree in a monoculture is like 
a drug addict and that it needs constant feeding. Gain perceives these forests as a prison and, driven by its instincts, begins to debark the trees, which leads to the death of some of the trees. This allows more sunlight in, and new vegetation begins to form. Now the worst pest shows up, the forest officer. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you really feel, Steph. He kills the game, not realizing that nature is trying to heal herself. The damage has become obvious these days, and the spruce monocultures are collapsing everywhere. They fall over like dominoes during strong winds and storms. The wells have run dry. Avalanches, storm damage, and water damage have become the norm costing the taxpayer billions. The people responsible are retired, and their successors do not know any better. (sighs) Okay, and there's a lovely picture on this page of the, um, on the one side is is the spruce conifer desert that he talks about with all the roots being extremely shallow. And all the soil underneath is ignored. And then there's a um, a polyculture forest on the right side. And um, you can see that the roots of many of these species are quite deep. So, anyway. All right. Any comments on that part? All right. Those... Those two sentences, the ones that include the game coming and eating the forest, and and this is just, it's, I don't know if someone who hasn't, like, paid attention to permaculture very much would, like, get the, like, this is it. This is, like, what nature does. This is how it, that deer is just nature going, oh, you're out of balance. Let me put you in balance. Right. No, I... it's, it's, it's a profound couple of paragraphs, you know. I've I've seen the difference uh, in Western Oregon visiting the Cobb Cottage Company, right? And they have their their leasing some acres on a larger land trust, and adjoining that up towards the top of the mountainside is like this timber company land, which is all the monoculture, evergreen, whatever species it is, and. I read that as with deer there, it's it's eating the bark off the tree because that's literally the only thing that it finds somewhat edible, and it's starving. And so that's what it has to eat. And stripping the bark off the trees can kill them, and then when they die, it opens up the light to the soil, and other seeds that are still dormant down there have a chance. But when we would take these morning walks, and um, Yanto would always encourage people not to talk, just to listen and absorb, you know, what's around you. Um, and so we would go up through this very diverse forest, and the land that they were uh, working had 
a wide range of different trees, both evergreen and deciduous, and um, the, the ferns everywhere, and you could hear all this constant sound from the, the different animals, the birds that were in that area. And they have deer walking around there. And this trail would get up to the top and would go, it would loop into that timber company land and talking about it being a desert, you'd walk in there and it was absolutely silent. You couldn't hear the wind because no wind could get through there. It was, you're, you're dodging between these trunks and the, the branches, try not to get scratched. And there's nothing on the ground. It's totally bare. And there wasn't a single animal to be seen. You couldn't hear birds, nothing. And it was just, just, a hundred percent difference between the two of them and is exactly the point he's he's bringing in these pictures and that that whole point there so along those lines um i kind of feel like one of the important things is is that uh a lot of times the the animal that is the biggest feared animal is some kind of bug so it could be a bark beetle or something um, and, uh, in fact, I know Yanto was, when I was there, he was showing me, uh, like a lot of the stuff that he did. And he was like, whenever there was a, uh, a piece of wood, um, like, like he would show us like some round wood that he did worked into some project or some building. And he's like, look at all the bark beetle paths on that. I just found this stick out there in the forest and the, the wood was of good quality. And I love the patterns that the bark beetles made on it. The point I'm trying to make is is that whether we're talking about Colorado potato beetle, bark beetle, deer, uh, whatever whatever the insect or animal is that's supposedly destroying the cash crop, then those are agents of nature. Those are part of nature. And and I and, I, and yes, what Seth is saying I think is rock solid. They. Those agents of nature are doing what they are supposed to be doing. And so, of course, like let's suppose that uh, you're a, a conventional forester and you've, you're taking care of 100,000 acres or a million acres. You're in charge of a million acres. And um, you lost uh, 10% of your trees in the last three years to deer damage because it's not it's – not, the deer are dying because there's nothing left to eat because you fucked up the landscape. It's like, no, I'm, I've got these, uh, I'm a forester. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make money with, uh, timber off this land and I'm losing timber. I'm losing money to deer damage. That's what it's called. Deer damage. And so how do I fix this? And it's like, I'm going to encourage a fuck ton of hunting on my land to get the deer out of there. I wanna, I wanna kill more deer. I want, you know, and that's his, that's his solution. So, uh, when it's the bark beetle, they're gonna spray for it. When it's, um, I know, I know I've mentioned in the podcast before how when I was on Mount Spokane, they were having troubles with the bark beetle and their solution was is they brought in like, 87 skillion yellow jackets because they're a broad spectrum carnivore. And the idea was that they would, they would eat the beetles. And, um, uh, 
So uh, when it comes to Colorado potato beetle, you know, what do they do? They, they bring in some sort of pesticide. And so um, any kind of insect or fungus, you know, our solution is kill, 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 kill. And, um, and it's kind of like, you know, I, I feel like, like in, in one of Sep's three in one videos, which, which by the way, I'm not sure I ever mentioned, but, but we have the three, the three in one videos available for sale on Permies because we got in contact with the, uh, the, the person who owns the copyright and, and arranged it. And so it's a, it's available now. Um, have you guys, have any of you seen the, the three in one videos? Yeah, I watched, uh, I watched them this week. Ah! Awesome! Awesome! I was looking through past Kickstarter, uh, goodies. I was like, oh, look at this. <laughs> so, uh, one of the cool things, uh, about that video is a point where you can see a whole lot of ants and aphids on something. And the message from Sep is something like, if I see this, I know that I have designed something poorly. Not, not that I need to go in there and, and kill them and get rid of them. It's that I've designed something poorly. There's something in my design that isn't quite right, and so this is the result. I At least, I can't remember his exact words. It's probably been five years since I've seen uh, the three-in-one videos, and I've seen them like 26 times. So, um, but uh, the, the point is, is, is design. Like, like you're still going to get it, no matter what design you do. There's going to be some. But if you've got an excess, or if you're upset by it anyway, and you want it to not be there, then it's kind of like, okay, it's your design that's the problem. The bugs aren't the problem. It's your design. All right. Anything else about the stuff that we've read up to this point? We've only gone just a couple of pages into this chapter. But um, now Seth moves into talking about Russia. Um, the summary is is that um, uh, when he was a kid, he was told uh, Russians are wicked people and uh, – and then he went and looked for himself, and he thinks they're lovely. He likes Russian people. He thinks they're cool. Um, he likes them very much. And so um, he talks about uh, different kinds of projects at Russia and things that work well and how nice the people are and how much uh, fun he has when he goes there. I hear that when he goes there, he's treated like a celebrity, like a superhero. Um, like he, he even has to disguise himself to some small degree at the airport in order to be able to get out of the airport because he is such a celebrity. That's what I've been told. Um, and so um, on, on page 104, I have something, but I think, I think, Mark, you've got something earlier than that that you want to talk about. Well, the the notes that I had on that section, I'm not sure what page you are because I'm using the Kindle version, which doesn't right. have the pages. Um, I, I knew that Russia overall was a large space, but I believe he uh, said that it's one-seventh of the planet's surface area, like land mass, 
um, for the entire planet is within the borders of Russia. Um, and very, very little of it is actually used for food cultivation. Um, he did make mention of how the the rich, you know, are extremely rich and they buy up large chunks of land that they use for monocultures um, because that's the most convenient way for making money and then they'll fence those areas off and try to protect themselves from, I forget, it's just poverty was the term he used um, or, or the poor in general, but there was sort of a back-to-lander movement that he encountered there where people who would come to meet him were really enthusiastic about um, getting these family plots where essentially they could homestead and plant a greater diversity of plants for sustainable agriculture uh, and that that would improve the ecological balance. So he was really enthusiastic about more people doing that. But it's just that at odds with how the his impression was the people in Russia that were making money were making lots of money due to the oil industry and so that the country was really dependent on the oil industry for its food that it would sell oil and buy in like 80% of the food there. Um, and so his hope was that more and more people would get back into these family plots where they could grow their own food and have a greater diversity of plants and food there and to also protect seed banks. I think that might be further into the chapter. Um, that were there next to Stalingrad, I think, or Leningrad, uh, where he had some family members who passed away during the war. So uh, years ago, in 2012, I think it was, he was pushing me really, really hard to go with him to the Siberia Project. And it was after that that I started to try to learn German and um which I totally sucked at, and I looked into getting a passport. And um, so the, the short version is is that I went to fill out the form, and um, the answers for most of the questions were none of your fucking business, but they didn't have a checkbox for that. And so um, <clears throat> it ended out. It, it turned out that the the correct answer for the question was not the answer that gets you a passport. So I don't have a passport. Um, uh anyway the 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 big thing is is that he showed me a bunch of pictures of his plans for um for the Siberia project and I kind of got the impression that he was going to have something like they were going to give him a million acres or some he, some just psychotically enormous amount of land in Siberia uh to turn into Sepatopia. And um, Sep kind of felt like the idea was is that each person would get like a shovel and a pocket full of seeds and they would need to somehow with a shovel and a pocket full of seeds build their own home and turn it into their own little utopia. And that that was going to be the, the grand solution. And each person would get two and a half acres, one hectare. And that would be sufficient for a family. Um, I He had a ton of professionally done drawings for this project. 
um, they were amazing and beautiful. There would, there would be a full 15 foot tall berm between each plot, like, like marking the border between each plot. And there would be like, uh, halfway up would be kind of a bit of a terrace. So like, um, there'd be that. I, I, I hope that that was not done by this dude and his shovel. <laughs> but, but, uh, that it was done by an excavator at some point, cause that would be a lot of fucking dirt for a shovel. Um, but I, I kind of got the, I, you know, I, I thought it was an amazing idea. And and I was excited about the project, but I think what he's describing now is is basically this project. And I've I've heard some stuff since that Russia still has a program where uh, I think people can get a hectare of land for, for effectively for free in Russia, and um, you know provided that they you know meet certain goals or something. I'm not sure what those are. Uh, Anyway, I think that might be what he's alluding to. Um, anybody else have anything else before page 104? Okay. I felt like when he was talking about his time in Russia, that part of what he was saying was that politics can really get in the way of agriculture, that uh, if if they, politics had been out of the way and people could have land that they, that they were on maybe not always in Siberia, but um, in a lot of places, and maybe not just in Russia, but in a lot of places in the world, that uh, a lot more could be done permaculture style. Didn't I think somewhere in this he said something about how um, there there is no persistent knowledge of how farming used to be because Stalin kind of killed that. Like he, I guess, had a thing imprisoned all the yeah. Yeah, like imprisoned for life or imprisoned until death, which came shortly after imprisonment or whatever. But it, it kind of sounded like um, <clears throat> like whatever happened, that knowledge didn't come back out of the so-called prisons. And so that knowledge is now lost forever. But somehow he had a thing about if if you've got farming techniques – in your head, you must go to prison? I'm not sure. All right. I'm going to read the next bits that I got marked off here. Um, today, vast areas in Russia are covered with birches, some up to 98%. This is a result of deforestation, as the birch is a pioneer plant, taking over fallow land. One of its main characteristics is that it burns easily and even burns when it is still green. Oak or beech need to season first, and so it is almost impossible to burn down a forest of healthy oaks or beeches, whereas a forest of birches burns in no time at all. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I did not know that. To prevent this from happening again and again, mixed forests need to be planted. The hydrological balance needs to be harmonized again. 
biodiversity needs to be encouraged. Water retention spaces need to be built in order for the landscape to heal. Fruit trees and mushrooms should be introduced. Animals should be kept. All to help a holistic approach to a diverse and healthy agriculture. That's it. For today's reading, that's all I've marked off. I think I think that was that was the best stuff we've read so far. Absolutely the best. All right. Anybody got anything else about today's reading? Oh, we're done. We we're we're free. <laughs> the end of the podcast. All right. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about Desert or Paradise, Homesteading, and Permaculture. All the time. time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.